0: Hello and welcome to Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. My name is Piltus Gulkers and today I'm joined by the whole team to discuss what our moments of note in 2020 were, what we're looking out for in 2021 and our favourite book on the Middle East. This episode was recorded in late November and was meant to be published before New Year's, but it unfortunately got quite delayed. However, everything we say does remain relevant. So hello and welcome everyone to the Almanac Christmas episode. Um, What's going to happen for this episode is is that each of the eight people who have shown up um, says what their big event of 2020 was and after that what they're looking for in the Middle East in 2021. And finally, what their favorite book or books about the Middle East is. Felix, do you want to start?
1: Yes, sure. According to me, the most important event during 2020, um, or issue basically, is the Eastern Mediterranean uh, resource crisis. It has been going on for a couple of years, but I feel like 2020 was quite a crucial year in that issue. Um, so basically, there was a discovery of large resources of, uh, of oil and gas in the Eastern Mediterranean basin. And this concerns not only Turkey and Greece, and those are the two countries you hear a lot about in the news, but basically all the countries that have a coastline in the Eastern Mediterranean. So, you know, Lebanon, uh, Palestine, Israel, Egypt, Libya, Turkey, Greece, um, Italy is getting involved. France is also trying to get involved through some through some local actors um, and then the UAE as well and, and Gulf countries in America. So it's, it's, it's basically uh, an important issue because it brings a lot of people together and it has the potential of basically going past a diplomatic uh, conflict and perhaps creating a, a military conflict at some point because what we're talking about is this billions of dollars of resources. It's evolved to a point of very high tension, especially between Turkey and Greece. This leads to my the answer to, my, to the second question, which is what I'm watching out for in the Middle East in 2021, which is basically the Libyan civil war. Because this Eastern Mediterranean crisis, despite currently only being a diplomatic showdown, Um, It is being the this diplomatic conflict is basically being played out in sort of proxy conflicts in in Libya, for example, because the sides that are opposed in the Eastern Mediterranean crisis are opposed in the Libyan civil war. And a good example to illustrate this point is the fact that um, Turkey having uh, basically nearly no allies in their claims to the resources in the Middle East and in the Mediterranean um, decided to in January 2020, helped the Libyan, or the internationally recognised government of Libya, to fight against um, the renegade uh, uh, dictator, or you know, uh, General Haftar. And basically, the deal was: we'll help you militarily, and you will support our claim in the Mediterranean. And on the other side, the exact same thing, the exact same thing is happening. And I think that this means that these, these, these civil wars are basically gonna be the deciding or one of the deciding factors in the larger Eastern Mediterranean resource crisis. And that's what I'll be you know, watching out for in 2021. Um, and finally, my favorite book about the Middle East would be uh, Karen Armstrong's Muhammad, a biography of the prophet. Um, so it may not be a, a very current book because this is more about you know, uh, early Islamic history, um, it was published in 2006 by a former Roman Catholic religious sister who worked in a rabbinical school um, teaching comparative, comparative religion. And um, I basically find it a very interesting book because it not only does it talk about and teaches you a lot about um, Islam, um, but it also teaches you a lot about the Middle East in general and on the West's like, historical and current view on and relationship with the region and the rest of the non-Western world. Um, it deconstructs many myths and stereotypes surrounding the life of the Prophet and Islam uh, that we hold in the West, um, and it gives you a good grounding in pre-Islamic and early Islamic history. But also, you know, really helps you uh, like understand where a lot of the current issues uh, stem from, or whether they're what, are they, what are they what they are, uh, you know, ideologically based on. Um, and Is it
0: uh, a thick yeah. book because it sounds quite thick.
1: Uh, it's not too big actually okay. um and it, it's it's she she managed to take a complicated topic um and basically wants you know any person to be able to read it um, you don't need any grounding in in middle eastern or you know islamic history or theology um and be, her mission behind it and her life mission in general is to try and create interfaith dialogue and tries to insist on you know the interdependence between the west and the Middle East and the Arab and Islamic world in general, and the importance of compassion between countries, religions, and individuals, and she really wants to work against those like false, deeply rooted and ancient Western conceptions of the Middle East, of the Arabs, and of Islam, which have and continue to participate in, you know, the rise of xenophobia today, or the discriminating domestic policies that we have within our own countries in the West, or the detrimental foreign policies and and uh, unfair targeting that the West may do uh, in the Middle East.
0: Um, I'm going to stop you there because else it's going to take too long. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next one, Uh, Michael.
2: The event that I would say was very important this year is one that just happened recently, the assassination of Iran's top nuclear scientist Mohsen Vahri Zadeh. It, It shows a lot of issues at play, not just this year, but going forward. One of them is this problem of discourse that we have in the West in newspapers uh, that covered the event. A lot of them described him as the top nuclear scientist that helped Iran's nuclear weapons program. And so, again, scholars have repeatedly criticized this, this portrayal of Iran's nuclear program as necessarily being a nuclear weapons program, um, especially as there's been a shift pre-2003 and post-2003 in its nuclear program. So there's this dialectic issue at play here. But more importantly, it shows the impediments of diplomacy between the U.S. and Iran, both past and future obviously uh, tying in with Trump's maximum pressure campaign and the struggles that Iran has had to face as a result of them. Interestingly enough, nobody has claimed this attack. If it were a non-state actor who committed this attack, they would have every motivation to want to claim it because of propaganda for prestige. That indicates that this was a state-sponsored assassination. And the state, at least in the region, that has the most experience assassinating uh, members of the national security apparatus of other regional states is Israel and its intelligence service Mossad. And it's unfathomable to think that such an assassination happened without the at least implicit endorsement of America, which would be unsurprising given the Trump administration's policies towards the Middle East and Iran particularly. This event is also important because it shows that there are a lot of actors that are still committed to preventing diplomacy and normalization between Iran and the U.S. And this ties to the events that I'm looking forward to in 2021, which are how does the Biden administration approach Iran and, and negotiations over re-entering the JCPOA? Particularly because there's a lot of uncertainty about the strategy that the Biden administration will take. Will it just re-enter the JCPOA in exchange for Iran also re-entering the JCPOA? I shouldn't say re-entering the JCPOA, but going into compliance uh, with it again after it was so patient, but then eventually became non-compliant. Do you think or they will? With... See, that's, that's <laughs> interesting. Yeah, true. that's the question, because it's also tied with other developments, which is the presidential election coming up in Iran. Because of the failure of the JCPOA to really manifest the economic and financial promises inherent in the agreement, mostly because of U.S. uh, noncompliance and maximum pressure. Hardliners have the upper edge, and it it seems like they are going to take the presidency. This just creates another impediment to diplomacy in terms of how willing they are to negotiate with the Biden administration. There's a lot of things up in the air right now. And whether or not the Biden administration will also tack on, you know, Iran's ballistic missile programs or its regional activity, there's a lot of pressure coming from Republicans as well as some more centric Democrats to tack on these additional issues with nuclear negotiations, which is extremely problematic, and for Iranians, is a non-starter. So we'll just have to see. In terms of my favorite book, I'm going to have to say the, um, let's see, Subalterns and Social Protest, History from Below in the Middle East and North Africa, edited by Stephanie Cronin. And this is actually a book That I read for a tutorial that I recently took. What I enjoyed about it is the method of analyzing history. It upturns traditional historiography on its head. And rather than analyzing historical events and movements from above, it reassigns agency to non-elite social groups and really highlights their ability to influence historical events within their own countries. One chapter talks about the role of women in Iran's constitutional movement. Mm -hmm. Other chapters talk about role of gypsies in the Ottoman Empire and the agencies that they had in terms of implementing the so-called weapons of the weak. So it's a very interesting book to sort of analyze the region from a different perspective. Freddie, you're next.
3: So the event that I think um was most important in the Middle East in twenty twenty was the normalization of relations between Israel and the UAE and Israel and Bahrain. And then just a few days ago, um we then have the secret talks in NEON between Saudi Arabia and Israel, which are like partially confirmed. And so that is that is a situation that's still unfolding. And so what I'm I mean what I'm really uh, watching out for for 2021 is therefore how the normalization um, of relations between Israel and Arab states will continue, and especially what role Biden will have in this. Will Biden push for more? Because obviously the US has been a key player in, in the, these normalizations. Will there be a slight reversal of relations? Is 2021 going to see the normalization of relations between Saudi and Israel? Who of course have had relations since the 90s, but you know, um, will it become official? So um, I I wish I had any answers, but I, I just have a lot of questions, actually, uh, on this topic. And so, um, yeah, that's what I'll be uh, watching closely in 2021. And then my favorite book about the Middle East uh, was actually published uh, in 1988. And it's Colonizing Egypt by Timothy Mitchell. Um, and he um, it's. Some people love it, some people hate it. People seem to have very strong opinions about it, no matter what, but I'm someone who absolutely loved this book. It's one of those books where where you read it and you think, damn, I wish I came up with this. I think it's genius. Um, So Mitchell combines sort of deconstructive theory with history and politics um, of the colonies, the history of colonization of Egypt. And I think that this book is valuable for historians, anthropologists, politics students, linguists, and literally anyone interested in the Middle East. I can't do the book justice in just a few minutes because it's so complex and he takes linguistics, architecture, literature, pedagogy, urban planning, politics and anthropology and art to sort of illustrate the sinister ways in which colonization transformed Egypt and the Egyptians itself. And while it was published in 1988, I think you know, I read it for the first time last year, I think. Uh, And I just, it could have been published, you know, last year. Um, Mitchell shows the ways in which colonization technology and Western ideas of truth and order work together. Um, It's Mitchell's book is really interesting, like a really um, interesting um, explanation of um, the Middle East as a representation, which is you know, something, the Middle East is something that people know before having set foot there, which is something that I'm sure everyone who reads the news about the Middle East recognizes that, you know, everyone seems to have an opinion about the Middle East and everyone seems to be somehow an expert, even if they've, you know, did a cruise on the Nile and somehow they know everything there is to know about the Middle East. Also, he explores the idea of, of, the, of that people represent the Middle East as a chaotic place, something that needs intervention to be ordered. This is also, I think, um, a very persistent uh, Orientalist trope that I see in the news, in literature, TV series. The idea that the, that the Middle East is this really chaotic, mysterious place that we cannot understand, but we need to help them, you know, um, order and and, and um, create a, a system. I also think that this book is really important for anyone interested in decolonizing the curriculum, which is a movement that we've seen in in a number of universities, including Oxford. But also UCL and, and a couple of others, and because Mitchell discusses um, the colonisation of the mind after colonisation, colonising the body. Um, and then, lastly, um, what what I found super interesting is that he explains how education moved from something that was personalised and organic, which was the traditional form of education in the Middle East, to something um, that was separate from life, something institutionalised and structured. And um, therefore, like colonizing Egypt led me to read another a lot of other books about um, oculocentrism, which is the privileging of vision over the other senses and um, the way that uh, colon colonization changed teaching uh, in the Middle East. And I don't know, I just think that this book is a gateway to so many interesting issues in the Middle East. And so I think that, yeah, I'll, I'll stop my rant there, but I think that everyone should read it, therefore. Yeah.
0: I That's think that it. was by far the most enthusiastic book review <laughs> <we gonna have laughs> I, am, today.
3: I don't understand like the teacher who actually recommended it to me uh Walter Armbrust he said that he really disliked it and um, he was like ah it's important you've got to read it and I came back to the tutorial saying like how do you not enjoy this this was the best book I've I've, I've read in ages
0: I I am the next person on my list and the sort of my my event is a series of events because in Starting in June, there was a major explosion um, at a military complex in a city called Parchin, which is close to Tehran, and at the same time there was a power shortage in in the city of Shiraz, which has major military facilities. And then in July, there were a series of explosions, uh, five in total, I think, which all targeted either nuclear facilities, suspected nuclear facilities, or military complexes, and basically the you know the most reasonable assumption is that this has been done by Israel to put more pressure on Iran and to undermine the Iran nuclear deal as much as they can before Biden uh, would get into office israel has not uh, claimed responsibility for the, any of the attacks but it would you know it, it's unlikely it is anyone else let's put it that way and similarly, in in August, there was also that high-ranking Al Qaeda member who was killed in Iran, presumably by an Israeli or Israeli-supported hit squad. And then of course, as Michael mentioned earlier, the nuclear scientist was killed in in November. And this, you know, it shows the Israeli desire primarily to um, undermine Iran- Iranian nuclear ambitions, which, as these nuclear plant, scare Israel a lot, and equally so with with the the gulf arab's presumably also to be aggressive before the biden administration entered the into the white house the irony of this is of course that they undermine diplomacy which ensure that iran will not be willing to return to the jcpoa and i don't understand this logic at all because they want to stop iran from developing a nuclear weapon and their diplomatic approach has or was by far the most effective way to do that and it's the only way to safely guarantee that Iran won't get a nuclear weapon but by putting this much pressure using assassinations uh, against Iran and Iranian scientists and installations I the only thing they do is make diplomacy less likely which you know makes war more likely and that is deeply deeply problematic. My big event in 2021 which I'm looking at for is the death of the king of Saudi Arabia And it's not that I want it to happen, but I'm just very curious on, you know, what is going to change within the country, because he is from a very different generation from his son. So, and there have been reports that he is the one who has stopped Saudi Arabia from recognizing Israel because of his allegiance to, you know, the older way of doing things about, for example, the Arab peace peace initiative. So it is possible that once he dies, Saudi Arabia will recognize Israel. And that would, of course, be a very big deal. Equally, so it's interesting to see if he is sort of a limiting factor on MBS's worst instincts or if the reforms in Saudi Arabia are going to accelerate once the king dies. You know, if, if he dies, uh, we're going to see potentially some very big changes in the foreign and domestic policy of Saudi Arabia and maybe a power struggle as well, because, you know, a number of people in the royal family are quite unhappy with MBS. And then on to my favorite book, which was released last year by David Kirkpatrick. He was the Cairo Bureau Chief for the New York Times from 2011 till 2015 Um, and the book is called Into the Hands of Soldiers. It is the best book I've read on the Middle East. It might also be because of my intense love for Egypt that I enjoyed it so much but it does a very good job of explaining the revolution in 2011, the revolution in 2013 and how impenetrable and how complex the situation was among the civil society within the country at the time. And I do recommend anyone who, who likes it to, uh, to read it because you can do it within a few days. The next one is Hajar.
4: So my, um, my event of the year ha- actually happened about two weeks ago in Morocco, in the Western Sahara. Um, so Morocco launched uh, formally a military operation in the Western Sahara that is represented by the Polisario Front, a Western Sahara movement. Um, And this was apparently due to peaceful protests at the border. Um, So this is peaceful uh, Western Saharan protesters who are protesting for their independence. And apparently, according to Moroccan reports, they blocked a popular border crossing, creating, creating traffic and creating sort of like, would you call it a blockade? of over 100 trucks. Both sides exchanged fire, but no deaths were recorded. And so the reason why this is really, really important is it actually marks the end of a three-decade truce between Morocco and the Western Sahara or the... Uh, Polisario movement um, and this was this was introduced I think in the late 1980s approximately and it's actually caused a lot of problems for Morocco in the past few years in the sense that um, Morocco has very very tense relations with Algeria directly because of the Western Sahara and because of their colonial occupation of the Western Sahara um, and e- even the UN has been involved for over 30 years with many Western Saharas moving to spain seeking refuge there and also um, neighboring algeria and for many people the western sahara is considered the last remaining colony in africa as morocco controls over 80 percent of the territory and limits the rights of the indigenous western saharan community so that's my event my book is so my favorite book i think what was your
0: event for next year sorry
4: oh do i have to do that now okay Well, actually, my event for next year is directly related to this because three right. days ago, Bahrain set up a consulate in um, Moroccan-controlled Western Sahara, which suggests that actually they're taking a greater interest in um, the the situation there. It suggests that the Arab states are are essentially choosing a side and have decided that it's actually time to calm down on the side of Morocco, meaning that the future for the Western Sahara is looking bleaker and bleaker and actually it's a lot less likely that they're going to to get the independence and the autonomy that they deserve but I think it's as the events have occurred so recently I think it'll be really interesting to see how they escalate and to see how foreign bodies step in because actually quite a a few foreign bodies have direct interest in the Western Sahara. And my favourite book or I think a book that Basically, anyone with an interest in gender in the Middle East should read "Is Sex in the Citadel" by Shirin Neshat. She's a British Egyptian journalist and immunologist, actually, um, and she spent five years researching every facet of sex possible in the Middle East, or primarily Egypt, your favourite place, Piotr. And she spent time, sort of like, discussing sexual attitudes, discussing the transforming face of marriage, the increased pressure. On young men to get married at a certain age despite the sort of shit economy that's in place. Things like masturbation, things like sex before marriage, things that haven't previously been discussed in a sort of clear and measured and unbiased manner. Um, She spends a lot of time like interviewing Islamic clerics. No, she spends a lot of time interviewing loads of body positive and sex positive Middle Eastern activists. Something I think which get sort of brushed under the carpet quite a bit I don't think people are very interested in actually hearing what um, the communities they study have to say about these things so I think that's what she does very very well and she actually asks a large range of Egyptian women their opinions and attitudes and I think it's just such a great book to sort of um, like start your own personal research and personal interests off and like kickstart them and like push them in the right direction because i think she does that very very well and she gives a great foundation for people to make their own judgments whereas i think a lot of um sex and gender focused books about the middle east tend to make the judgments for you rose my moment of note this
5: year um is the death of Mohammed reza shajarian in iran iran is in a year with so many different moments of mourning and um death but this is like a this is a cultural loss um, and it's market it's um, it 's a remarkable moment because it brought together people from lots of different political and social backgrounds and it, yeah it 's a moment that reminded people of their shared cultural history rather than just the modern divisions that divide them that often come from cultural features as well. Um, he died on the eighth of October uh, and for a number of days, the streets were full of people all over the country singing um holding candlelit vigils and just uniting and mourning in a, a way that was so deep I don't think I've seen that in any other country um he also won two UNESCO awards for music uh, you should all listen to him he's brilliant um he's on Spotify yeah he, so he's a classical musician and he's most known for making classical music popular um among the younger generations and kind of bringing that very traditional art into the modern cultural scene and making it At the forefront of it. He also gained some notoriety in 2009 during the protests. He sided with the people against the government, which was quite a bold move of him. (laughs) And then, so I think for what I'm looking for for next year, I think we've already been talking about Iran because I think it kind of underpins everything that's going to happen. And I I mean, they've just, Iran has had the most unbelievable year with the assassination of Qasem Soleimani um, and then shooting down the passenger plane protests all over the country they've had a terrible um experience of covid there was the execution of the wrestler um nabi Defkari, as this new assassination of the nuclear scientist so i mean it's just been you, you can't believe what the country's gone through and the the economy is completely in tasses and inflation is through the roof and people just can't afford basic commodities like meat so it's just been the most unbelievable year and so I mean, as Michael said, we're just looking to see what's going to happen with sanctions and the nuclear deal and just really hoping that that's all going to, that the economy will improve and people's quality of life will recover because that is what's most important here. And also there's the presidential elections coming up in June, which is um, also something to, to think and worry about. Um, and as for my book, I thought I'd go for a piece of fiction because... I mean, Iranian literature and um, their modern arts, like their cinema and their poetry, is just some of the greatest art in the world. Um, and so I thought this, this is a modern book, though. This was published, I think, maybe two years ago. Um, and it's been shortlisted for the International Booker Prize for 2020 and long listed for the National Book Award 2020. It's called The Enlightenment of the Green Gauge Tree, or in Persian, Ashraqa Delechta Guja Sabs. You can get copies in both languages pretty easily. And it's a story of a family in the aftermath of the revolution kind of coming to terms with the execution of the son in the family. And it's written with like a magical realist style um, that's just very entertaining. Um, and it's filled with lots of kind of tropes from classical literature, but also lots of anecdotes from what daily modern life, at least in the 80s, Was like in Iran Um, and it's just it's it's brilliant and it's fast-paced and it's absolutely gorgeous
6: so I recommend it.
0: Fantastic. Max?
6: Before Rose goes if she was talking about Shah Jarian, it might be fun for Rose to talk to everybody a little bit about how we used to learn the sitar or specifically Rose's skills at playing the sitar in Iran before I then go on to talk a little bit about um, cinema, yeah, sure. but I'm, I'm so I bad. At the sitar. Do not even bring that up. I think we should publicize it. We we all bought sitars, and I think it's I don't know. I think very really sad. Um, <laughs> Where's yours? Sorry. Bring them Where's back. yours? Um, I think it's with my. I think we gave them away before we left. We gave them to Marnie Marnie being our very very lovely Iranian friend. Because we couldn't take them back, seeing as we all got charged. I think predominantly me got charged. Nearly five hundred pounds in excess, and I think that was after stuffing most of my things in Rose and Alfred's bags. So, a sitar wouldn't have, wouldn't have cut it, so to say.
0: We'll we'll, we'll do an episode of both of you play together, <laughs> and we'll release an album as part of our tour to increase awareness.
6: I was told that I categorically have no talent at calligraphy and the sitar. So, um, Rose, on the other hand, was told that she was talented at both. But that's uh... <laughs> Max
4: genius. <laughs>
6: Um, anyways, yeah, listening to all of your guys' big events, I sort of went with what what I consider to be a big person, and I think it's more of a personal choice. Rose briefly mentioned Iranian cinema, and uh, I just thought I'd take that first point as an opportunity to promote some of the cinema of a very famous Iranian, contemporary Iranian director called Ebrahim Hatami Kiar, who's not particularly well-known in the West just because his films are so Iran-centric, but also just they're much more tailored for a... Um, Iranian audience, but I would recommend them to anybody interested in learning a little bit more about Iran, especially in the aftermath of the revolution and looking toward, looking at, say, watching some films about how the Iran-Iraq war specifically was represented. This director, Khatami Kiyar, he's still producing films. I think he produced one film called Bodyguard, which is more of a sort of Iranian mission impossible, from what I could tell. But he's also produced some unbelievably thought-provoking films, such as The Scent of Yusuf's Coat, and another one called Kharki to the Rhine, so from Kharki to the Rhine, which just looks at the lives of Iran-Iraq war veterans and their PTSD, even if, even if it wouldn't have been categorized in such a way. And uh, I just think that his films, and I've been making my way through so many of his recently, um, and I'm hoping to maybe write a part of my thesis on his cinema. So it's been a big personal event, I guess, in light of being stuck at home with nothing but my laptop for quite a while. Um, a bit like everybody else, uh, I'm looking, I wouldn't say I'm looking forward to it, I'm watching out definitely for the outcome of the uh, Iranian uh, presidential elections, uh, even in light of Biden being elected, um, and I think Trump has accepted this, uh, I'm not particularly hopeful in that I think even if Biden were Speedy Gonzalez, I think it's mostly impossible for him to even, have got, to even get rid hypothetically of all of the sanctions were he to want to do so, and then, as we've already mentioned, try and sort of re-enter some sort of negotiation or agreement such as the jcpoa that being said there's always some sort of reason to be hopeful even if well i think it is looking particularly likely that the hardliners will be elected um or hardliner will be elected but that being said that is what i'm definitely uh looking uh watching out for in the next year i wouldn't necessarily say it's my favorite book but it's a book that i've particularly enjoyed recently probably in some part due to how difficult it was to read and reading it in Persian, and it's uh, Ab Zadigi by Jalal al-Ahmad. There is an English translation out there for people who'd be interested in reading it. But uh, so Jalal al-Ahmad is Iran's most prolific 20th century uh, fiction and non-fiction writers. And this particular work, which would translate very literally as West-struckness, often translated as a West-toxification and or I think Occidentalism as well, essentially maps out in a particularly creative way I'd almost describe him as a sort of particularly acutely sensitive historian type figure, but it uh, essentially looks at the ways in which the West, in all of its uh, in all of its facets, has uh, has contributed to Iranian to an Iranian loss of cultural identity because of their adoption and imitation of a lot of Western models, be it in education, the arts, and political and economic institutions, but I guess you can read lots of books like that and you could probably pick up most books about contemporary uh, Iranian politics to look at the ways in which the West have intervened and usually to no benefit. Uh, but I guess what really struck me, what was so, stu- like, so so striking and amazing about this book was just the way in which he wrote it and his strong sense of voice and the ways in which, especially in the first opening chapters, when he maps out this disease, which he quite literally calls a disease, he outlines it in the sort of similar way that a doctor would diagnose a particular disease. And he undergo he, Traveled so widely in Iran, and he interviewed so many different people, and he talks, I think, just so honestly and sensitively about these issues. And I think about, say, the lives of people in villages who are struggling in light of industrialization and urbanization. And I just think that it's for anyone looking to sort of understand the Iranian psyche in the mid 20th century and to look at what was influencing their literature and was influencing various different political movements. I just think it's a sort of must-read, even if it will seem a little bit alien when reading it, because I think the English translations aren't always the best but then anyone planning on reading it could also take it up take up trying to learn Farsi.
0: Okay Helen are you ready?
7: So the event that I wanted to talk a little bit about was the Beirut explosion of 4th of August Um, and just as a reminder uh, I feel like pretty much everyone knows what happened in Beirut but as a reminder for those who may have forgotten um, blissfully killed over 200 people. The injured number was put at around 5,000. Roughly 300,000 people were made homeless as a consequence, um, and the property damage was in the ballpark of 10 to 15 billion US dollars. So it was a pretty tragic, horrific event. But I think what I really want to talk about is how the Beirut explosion is really kind of the culmination or the embodiment of everything that's been happening in Lebanon really in the last year. Um, so quite fortuitously, I guess, we're recording this podcast nearly a year exactly after the beginning of the Lebanese protests last year. So they began on October 17th, 2019. Um, we're recording this on 30th of October. On 29th of October last year, um, sorry, not October, November, sorry, my bad. So a month after the protests. And since then, Lebanon's just been through the ringer. So not only has it had to deal with COVID, not only has it had to deal with um, massive economic strife and um, mass protests, the biggest protests the country's ever seen. Um, But then this explosion came in August. And not only was it a horrible event, but it was a completely avoidable event, had it not been for the negligence of the government, as we learnt. After. Um, So, effectively, the reason the explosion happened was um, there was an extremely unsafe amount of ammonium nitrate being stored in the port, which the government knew about and knew was being stored um, without proper precautions in place. And ammonium nitrate, which is just like the most flammable stuff ever, just went off. So, all those people who died and all those people made homeless could have been avoided, basically. You know, it's interesting because the explosion really caught the attention of the global media Not long after um, Emmanuel Macron came to visit. And that caused like a big press media storm in Lebanon. And this really grabbed um, the Western press um, in particular's attention. I think as horrific as it was, the the thing about it is, is that this was not necessarily as horrific and as tragic and as traumatic as it was. This was not surprising. To the Lebanese people, that this negligence and that this could happen was something that very much made sense to Lebanon, um, which is why I think this explosion is important to talk about. And I think for me, tacking on to that, what I'm excited for, um, hopeful for, is that in 2021, given everything that's happened in Lebanon and everything that the Lebanese have suffered in the last year, that this is an opportunity for a new wave of political organization and political activism and that this provides an opportunity for the next generation to provide other options in response to this massive tragedy. I'm not saying that's guaranteed. <laughs> I think it's anything um, but guaranteed, but um, that's what I'm hopeful for in 2021. So that's why I'm keeping my eye on. And then in terms of my favorite book, I don't want to say it's my favorite book in the Middle East of all time, I think that's too difficult for me to choose. But um, my favourite book of uh, 2020 is um, *Our Women on the Ground*. It's an anthology of essays, all written by um, Arab female journalists, edited by Zara Hankir. It's not like the most perfect book if you're looking for something that's totally representative of the Middle East. It is very much um, based on experiences in the Levant. There are a few. Ex- Exceptions to that, but it is largely Syrian, Lebanese, um, Palestinian women. Um, there are exceptions, but I think the reason why this book is so amazing is not only is the writing um, pretty consistently fantastic across the book by all these different women, but it shows a real variety of storytelling. And I think we're often talking about the need for non white, non Western female perspectives and stories as if they aren't out there. Um, But this book very much proves that those stories are out there, but you just have to go looking for them. And so if anyone's interested in reading stories from uh, perspectives of Arab women working in the field of journalism, um, in charge of their own narratives, I think this book is a great place to start.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. Join us next time when we examine the reasons behind Lebanon's ongoing political and economic crisis. Almanac is a student-run initiative at the Middle East Centre in the University of Oxford. The opinions expressed in the podcast do not in any way represent the official opinions of the University of the Middle East Centre. It is edited and hosted by myself, Piotr Skokas, with the invaluable aid of Lily Sullivan Felix Walker
2: Michael Mimari
3: Hazar Mittah
2: Max Randall
3: Frederica Brockhoven Rose Johnson Helena Murphy